This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and UConn Health Orthopedic and Sports Medicine. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You are encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information and answers all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it's great to be with you once again today. And this is our 49th consecutive program dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. And uh, we're going to go over a lot of things today. Um, I have uh, an outstanding guest who will be with us for the second half of the program. Uh, That will be Mr. Eric Arlia. Uh, Mr. Arlia is the Senior Director of System Pharmacy for all of Hartford Healthcare. And we're going to look at some of the scores and the information, um, and I call them the scores, looking at the numbers and the trends and information that we need to have to judge which way this pandemic is going and what we need to do as good citizens. Now, one of the things I want to make clear to to the listeners here, I know from the emails I received that most of you listening to this program are well-informed in the sense that you're the people who are doing the right thing, wearing masks, uh, getting vaccinated. But a lot of the information I provide here is not to convince you, but to try and give people information to have a healthy conversation with others. Uh, When I see patients, I typically now ask if they've been vaccinated or they plan on getting vaccinated, Uh, not to confront people, but to find out what they're thinking. And, And I often find that the people who say, I'm not sure, it leads to, again, a healthy conversation of why they should get it. It's not people digging in their heels or uh, it's just a question of getting the right information out there for people to have to make an informed decision. And, and I, I urge all the listeners to do that, uh, to, to have a healthy conversation with friends or people you come across and, and find out and maybe help them with some of this uh, information. And, and the information is, is pretty interesting. I mean, well, let's face it. There, there are over 570,000 American deaths since the onset of this pandemic. Um, what What's hopeful about the information is that uh, almost 20% of all Americans have been fully vaccinated. About 33% at least have gotten one dose. And when you look at people over 65, we're at about 58% of people getting uh, both doses. So uh, we're making headway, at least in the older population. In Connecticut, our positivity rate is hovering around 3%. So we're doing well overall here in Connecticut, and things are being managed properly so far. And we're just trying to work our way through this. But as a nation, we had 73,000 new cases uh, yesterday alone. 
and it's interesting because as we've gone through the pandemic, certain things have become evident that work better than they did before. And I wanted to bring up that point. Uh, this week is the annual meeting for the American Academy of Neurology. The American Academy of Neurology is the professional group that I belong to and most neurologists belong to. There's over 20,000 members worldwide. So every year you have an annual meeting. So people fly to what's typically a big city because it's a big meeting. You have to get hotel arrangements, uh, attend lectures and get places. There's transportation to be arranged, meals. Uh, but this year, the meeting is held entirely virtually. And I was talking to someone at the academy this week, and they found that the sign-up for this meeting has been outstanding. I mean, just think about it. You can get all the benefits of first-rate lectures, scientific discussion from your home. Increasingly, physicians have found that it's harder to get away from a practice and leave your patients and cancel appointments. So it's really interesting to see that they're telling me now that with every future meeting, there will be a virtual component to it where you have an option of signing up virtually rather than attending the meeting in person. So it's gonna be interesting to see how that develops. But again, it's one of those things along with telemedicine that has come out of a necessity from this pandemic. I'm a little bit distressed about the telemedicine piece because insurers now are either cutting back what they're going to pay for telemedicine or eliminating all payments for telemedicine. Telemedicine has worked. It's worked for people who have difficulty getting to a doctor. Because don't forget now, when you have prescriptions, you have to have a doctor visit at least once a year to have those renewed. So for people who are disabled or of limited ability, people who are working and trying to make ends meet, a virtual visit has been a very effective way of touching base with your doctor and making sure things are okay. Now these are typically well visits, uh, people who are not severely ill. But for insurers in Connecticut to start saying that they're going to not pay for it is a huge mistake. It's a real step backward. A lot we've been hearing about are the trends with the pandemic that we're facing right now. This fear of another surge. Where, where are people getting this information of another surge? And it's interesting because uh, in researching this a little bit, there is a pattern forming here. Um, in May of last year, so May of 2020, we started to see the number of cases rise in the Midwest. The number of positive, positive cases, the number of hospitalizations. Eventually, in July, that trend moved to the south, and we started seeing it again in California and Georgia, where we started having the highest number of cases. I mean, we were seeing over 7,000 cases a day then. This pattern came again in November. In November of last year, again, we started seeing this rise in the Midwest, followed by the deadliest month ever in American history in January of 2021, where we had 
300,000 cases. So we really had a problem. And what are we facing now? Well, we're hearing about Michigan, where 90% of all beds are unavailable uh, or their ICUs are filled to 90% capacity. Uh, the same thing in Minnesota. And this is now with this B117 variant. This is the British variant, and it's much more highly transmissible. We think it's 50 to 70 times more transmissible than the original COVID-19 variant, the COVID-19 virus. So we're seeing these numbers in the Midwest again for a third time. I think that it's safe to make the assumption that by early summer, we're going to see these numbers spread to the south again. Now, the frightening part of this statistic is that Michigan and Minnesota have relatively high vaccination rates. So the idea that we have in the back of our heads that, well, if we just get more vaccine out there, we're going to be ahead of this. We're not. We aren't there yet. It's a race. And we're losing the race based on the data we see coming from the Midwest. And it's not so much the vaccine available. It's the number of vaccinations administered. So that's why we have to encourage people and give them the information they need to get vaccinated. The states with the lowest vaccination rates are, typically, are now Mississippi, Alabama, Louisiana, Tennessee, where the best rates are in New Mexico, Connecticut, New Hampshire. New Hampshire has 65% of everyone over 18 having at least one shot. You also see high numbers in Maine and Massachusetts. But as I mentioned, this B117 variant is more transmissible. And it's not just the transmissibility, it's the fact that it is affecting children. Our greatest asset is our children. And those are the ones who are being affected. That's the big difference in this surge. The hospitalizations in these ICUs are 20-year-olds now, something we didn't see last year. So this surge coming and what we are dealing with now is particularly troublesome. The other variant we're dealing with is something called the P1 variant. This is a Brazilian variant um, that arose in mid-November of last year, but again, it is much more transmissible. We're seeing it primarily in Canada, in British Columbia. And the problem with this variant is it has demonstrated that people who have had COVID already can be reinfected with the P1 variant. So getting back to when I talk to people about why they may not be getting vaccinated, often they'll say, well, I had COVID, so I already have the antibodies. It's not enough. Those antibodies are not enough to protect you and to protect those around you. Summer's coming. And everyone wants to make travel plans. People want to get out. So how do you plan? 
Well, first of all, you need to decide where you're going and look at the rates of infection for that region you're going to at that particular time. It takes a lot more planning than just picking a hotel these days. You have to know how you're going to get there. The rates of infection on airplanes. They said, actually, now that they're selling the middle seats, if they have the middle seat filled, you have a 50% more risk of being infected. So, again, do you have to fly there? Do you have to drive there? And what are the activities you're going to do when you get there? Are they mostly outdoors? Are you going hiking? Are you going fishing? Are you going skiing? What are you doing before you plan a vacation? So no one's saying don't go anywhere, you know, just stay in your house and isolate. What we're saying is you need to carefully plan this for yourself and your family. And always remember, the key items here are not just vaccination. It means using masks, social distancing, and hand washing. I've used this analogy before with everyone, and you have to think of the vaccine as this fireproof suit, right? You have a, somebody gives you a fireproof suit like race car drivers wear. And just imagine that it's 95% effective in terms of not getting burnt. Well, you have this fireproof suit. Now, just because you have a fireproof suit on, doesn't mean you go rushing into a fire so you can test that 5% or not. And that's the same thing with the vaccine. You're 95% effective, affected and protected, but you don't go looking for trouble. We're going to take a short break, and then we're going to get back. I want to spend some time talking about the recent pause with the J&J &J vaccine and the complications, specifically cerebral venous sinus thrombosis. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and uh, we're going over important information that we need to know about the pandemic, the trends, as we plan on going forward uh, with our lives. And really... Uh, getting vaccinated. We're hearing more and more about vaccines available, especially here in Connecticut, and about the pause, uh, as it's become known, as far as the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. And we're going to have a detailed discussion with that in the next half of the program with uh, Eric Arlia, who's the Senior Director of System Pharmacy at Hartford HealthCare. But one of the things discussed as a reason for the pause has been cerebral venous sinus thrombosis. And this is a neurologic condition uh, that develops when a vein becomes blocked. A sinus, whenever we think of sinuses, we think of air and breathing, uh, but a sinus is really just a reservoir. Uh, in the case of your breathing air, but in this case, a reservoir of blood. So the veins that drain from your brain go into these sinuses. So they're large blood vessels. And they can develop a thrombosis, a clot. So a thrombosis is a clot. And there's a fear that the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, as well as the AstraZeneca vaccine, are causing an abnormality in clotting 
that causes thrombosis. The more common types of thrombosis are what we call deep vein thromboses. Those are the things you see in people's legs when they get a clot, and there's always a fear that a piece could break off and go to the lungs and potentially kill someone. But cerebral venous sinus thrombosis is extremely rare uh, in the sense that uh, in, the, in the normal population, you may see five cases uh, per million. And uh, with that, uh, it becomes rare, and it's usually seen in women. Uh, we see it in uh, usually younger women who are on a birth control pill, uh, women who are pregnant or are immediately postpartum and may have what we call a hypercoagulable state where there's an abnormality in their blood that causes their blood to clot more readily and become thicker, for lack of a better term. And the symptoms are typically a severe headache, blurred vision, uh, fainting. You can see seizures. You can see coma. Now, in regard to the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, they have seen six cases out of 6.8 million doses. Those six cases, we don't know that they are all cerebral venous thrombosis. They can also, some of them can also be thromboses to the leg. But even assuming that they're all cerebral venous thrombosis, that, that number is a lot less than you would see in the normal population. Also, again, these only occurred in women between the ages of 18 and 48. What we don't know yet were what were those risk factors in the women from 18 to 48. Were they on a birth control pill? Uh, were they obese? Had they had a head injury? Were they smokers? So we don't have that factor in here yet. So what the CDC has said is we need to stop and take a look at this before we decide to go forward. And now people ask me and they say, well, does this erode confidence in the vaccine? I don't think so. I think it actually boosts confidence that someone is looking out for you and looking out at these factors. Now, I don't know what it's going to mean. It may mean nothing, this pause. It may mean that we're not going to use this vaccine in women between the ages of 18 and 48 or women who have risk factors. That may be the case. But what has made this even more complex is the fact that the people who have this condition now also have what we call thrombocytopenia, meaning the platelets, the things that cause your blood to clot, are diminished. So it's ironic that the thing that causes your blood to clot is diminished and your blood is clotting more, thus making the treatment of this condition more difficult. Also, the reason for the pause is the fact that all these cases developed within two weeks of getting the vaccine. So we know that 3 million vaccines were given 
when we found this out. So it is reasonable to take a pause of two to three weeks to get more data. So now of those three million people who got the vaccine, how many of those people will develop those clots? So I support the idea of the pause because it's going to help us find out what happened to that latest group and hopefully be able to treat it. So I don't think it erodes vaccine, vaccination uh, support and confidence. It's also important to note that people who get COVID get thrombosis. We've heard of people losing limbs. Um, and actually, in the case of people who get COVID, I mean, we're talking about rates of six out of seven million. But in people who get COVID, the rate is 39 cases of thrombosis for every one million. So we need to take this in the context that you are at much greater risk of illness, thrombosis and death if you get COVID as opposed to getting the vaccine. With that, we're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back uh, with my guest, Mr. Eric Arlia, the Senior Director of System Pharmacy at Hartford HealthCare. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. Welcome back to Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and uh, it gives me great pleasure to welcome my guest today, Mr. Eric Arlia. Um, Eric is the Senior Director of System Pharmacy. Um, we go way back uh, to when Eric and I were both at Bacchus Hospital uh, working. When I first became uh, familiar with Mr. Arlia and his great work, and it's great to see him overseeing all the pharmacy operations for Hartford HealthCare. Eric, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Dr. Alessi. I appreciate it. Um, Eric, let's... Let's start by giving everybody kind of an overview of the vaccines available, because they all hear these terms, virus vector, mRNA. And when you hear words like RNA, right away, people think they're we're altering their DNA. So can you just talk about uh, the differences in the vaccines and how they were developed a little bit? Sure. So the, the messenger RNA vaccines, those are those are the ones made by Moderna and Pfizer. That's a relatively new vaccine technology. It's actually been in the works for many years. Uh, and basically what it does is it sends a signal into your cell to make a certain molecule. In this case, it, it's the spike protein on the uh, coronavirus. Uh, it does not enter the nucleus of the cell. I think that's important for everyone to know. So there's no way it's going to... Um, you know, modify the genetics of, of your actual uh, of your actual DNA. Uh, this is a this, this is really a great promising technology. Like I said, it's been uh, in development for many years. The biggest problem they that they had had with it was uh, stability and really finding a way uh, to keep this little um, messenger RNA molecule stable long enough uh, for it to be manufactured and then administered. So a lot of work was really accelerated on that through the corona, uh, through the coronavirus pandemic. And uh, I, this is really promising for the future because this technology probably will be able to be used for many other types of diseases. The J&J &J vaccine is the virus vector uh, type of vaccine. That's more common. That's what many of our vaccines over the last 30 to 40 years 
have been uh, manufactured by. And those, those vaccines uh, usually take modifying some other type of a virus that doesn't cause any illness in humans and making it look like a part of, of the, the, the virus that you're trying to attack, in this case, the coronavirus. Uh, so all of these things, whether it's our body making the spike protein or the virus vector, you know, having something like the spike protein on it, what it's really doing is it's training our bodies to recognize these um, these types of structures as invaders. And that way, if you do become exposed to the coronavirus in the future, you, your body will already know that this is something that needs to be attacked. It will know how to attack it, and it will happen very rapidly uh, and, you know, reducing very much the um, likelihood of illness being caused. I think the other big difference that I would note, too, is that the, um, the messenger RNA vaccines can actually be manufactured much more quickly. And a lot of questions came out um, about how fast these, these vaccines had been produced. That's one of the other big differences between the two types of vaccines. Uh, they can be engineered and manufactured without going through a, like a, a growth media process. So, you know, if, if viruses in the future um, that need to be, um, vaccines need to be created for or come up, you know, they can, we can manufacture this type of a vaccine faster because it can all be um, engineered without the use of growth media. Eric, a lot of people are concerned about the safety profile of the vaccines. Um, you know, it, I'll rely on you for a more technical explanation. What I ex- explain to people is um, it's so safe that I put it in my arm, okay, and uh, and my whole family. And if you mm-hmm. look around at the physicians who they meet uh, and healthcare uh, people who are exposed to this uh, have felt that it's safe enough uh, to take the vaccine. But what do you tell people when when they express some concern about the safety of the vaccines themselves? I think, you know, first I start off by saying, you know, the, the, the trials last year, this is what we were all following all through last summer and into the fall. You know, they were well-designed trials, you know, safety and efficacy. You know, those are those are equally measured in the trials that are done for new vaccines and all new drugs. Um, you know, they, they, no corners were cut. A lot of independent review was done of the data. We went into this feeling very confident that in a, a sample of about 30 to 40,000 individuals, you know, safety and efficacy could be established. Looking at the messenger RNA vaccines, we've now administered it just in the United States, almost 2 million doses of those vaccines. And, you know, and at this point, we haven't seen any unusual um, adverse reactions come out of those. Uh, of course, we know right now the J&J vaccine is on pause because of some reports of a certain type of a blood, co- blood clot being created. But again, at this point, we, we, we can't even say for certainty if there's a connection between the two. And I would also say um, here in the United States, you know, because we have a very strong adverse event reporting system for vaccines that's nationally monitored and it's something that all of us who are overseeing vaccination programs such as we are at Hartford HealthCare are really focused on making sure that information gets put into that vaccine adverse event database that the government keeps. So, you know, we feel like we're getting a very, very large amount of information very quickly uh, to really make sure that the, the vaccines are very safe. Eric, why do some people have a reaction to the vaccine? We're hearing this um, especially after the second dose of a vaccine, whether it be Pfizer or Moderna vaccine, 
where people will get this transient um, kind of febrile illness, for lack of a better term, or a flu-like illness where feeling aches and pains, a little fatigue, may last 12 hours. Um, I, I know many people have had it with other vaccines in the past, particularly um, I've had patients who have had the shingles vaccine and, and had that feeling. But do we know why some people get it? Just as an observation, it seems to be more in younger people um, than it is in older people. And I don't, And that's just an observation of mine among my patients. But do we have some insight into that yet? I think it's really related to, you know, how your, your body responds uh, to being exposed to it. You know, I always like to tell people, you know, if you get that reaction and you don't feel good for a day, you know, it, you should actually think of it as a good thing because it means that your body had a very robust response uh, to the vaccine and is making antibodies. You know, I think that's also why you see it more in younger people. You know, younger people being younger and healthier just tend to have more uh, robust immune systems. It's not entirely predictable. Certainly some older people will get it as well. It also, you know, I also want to be clear that if you don't get that reaction, that does not mean that you didn't have a reaction um, and start to develop the antibodies to it. It's, it's, it's just something that happens to some people. You know, they have a very aggressive immune response uh, uh, to the vaccine and, you know, they'll feel those effects. Eric, you know, we want to get as many people vaccinated as we can. But obviously, there's there are a group of people who should not be vaccinated and cannot get the vaccine. And I think we forget those folks because uh, those are people who can't get the vaccine, will be vulnerable to the virus. And, and really, that's that's the population we really have to protect by reaching a herd immunity with vaccine. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the people who can't get the vaccine? You know, there are people out there. Well, well, first of all, let's start with the, the large group. We, uh, yeah. at this point in time, can't give it to anyone under the age of 16, although we know that um, Pfizer has, re has requested review to get approval for their vaccine for ages 12 to 16. So the entire pediatric population can't get it. Uh, people who have had documented reactions to vaccines in the past uh, may be advised not to get the vaccine as well. Uh, certain types of immunocompromised patients may not be able to get the vaccine. You know, and I think that's one of the, you know, the debate becomes, you know, we as a society have, do we have an obligation for all of us who can get vaccinated to get vaccinated so we can reach that herd immunity and stop the vaccine from spreading? You know, everybody will have their viewpoint on this. I feel like um, it's a it's a very worthwhile thing to do. You know, if you can put yourself in someone else's shoes, or if you or a loved one were in that situation, you would you would want you would want people around you to get vaccinated so that you would also be protected through herd immunity. Uh, and and I think that that's a, a great point. I mean, it's really basically comes down to being a good citizen uh, from that standpoint. Um, what about children? Uh, I, we're hearing about, you know, trials going on. Do you think that's going to be a struggle in designing a vaccine that's effective for children without side effects? I, I'm, I'm very confident that we're going to get there. I think that, you know, it's, you know every, again, it, it goes back to what I was saying earlier. You know, we can't rush through trials. Trials take time. Uh, there's a lot of data that needs to be collected. There's a lot of uh, protocols that need to be monitored very closely. Um, you know, it's just going to it's going to be a process. 
I, I haven't seen anything that leads me to believe that this vaccine won't be safe and effective in all age groups. You know, we may have to, I know the 12 to 16 year olds will, will probably be the same dose as the adults. As we get into younger ages, you know, like with other vaccines, sometimes you have to determine if a different dosage is, is more appropriate for a younger population. Uh, so again, those things all need to just go through that vetting process and we have to get a large enough population of people willing to participate in trials uh, so that we can feel as confident as we did for adults uh, that it's safe and effective for different age groups. But I, I feel like we're going to get there. I think I'd like to think we're going to get there in all age groups um, sometime by the end of this year. That's my hope and wish. Once again, I find it ironic that in looking at these trials and talking to people for the the trials for children, uh, so many of the children who are in, enrolled in the trials, and we talk about trials as um, a, a child will either get the vaccine or will get a placebo. But many of the children who have been entered into these trials are the children of physicians. Um, and it, it's really important that people understand that it's it's physicians and healthcare workers who are working towards this who are willing to even take the gamble and the risk of having their own children be vaccinated because we do, we don't see that great a risk so it's important to note that uh, we're going to take a short break and then we're going to be back with my guest mr eric arlio who's the senior director of system pharmacy for hartford healthcare we want to talk about the boosters right we're starting to get information about boosters when are they needed um and we want to talk about uh, some of the availability of vaccines how you can get vaccinated as quickly as possible you're listening to healthy rounds on wtic news talk 1080 We're back. i'm your host dr anthony alessi and once again we're talking about vaccines, the safety of vaccines, the availability of vaccines, and how you get the vaccine, right? Because we have plenty of vaccine now. And the question is, how do we get it into people's arms and set up systems? And it's great because we're talking to the person today who does that. Um, Eric, how did you go about putting together, I know you have now 29 sites, I believe, Mm -hmm. um, of administering vaccine, but how did this process evolve? I mean, this is not something you just wake up one morning and you have 29 sites. There was some planning. How did that get planned out, and 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 what's the plan going forward? Sure, you know, I I, I always feel honored to 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 talk about this. Uh, there are so many people that have been working on this in Hartford Healthcare and in, in many of our health health systems here in Connecticut. You know, when we knew that the vaccine was coming, you know, around the November timeframe, we started planning how we would be able to set ourselves up uh, to vaccinate large numbers of people. Uh, if you think about our hospitals, um, you, can, you can imagine trying to vaccinate, you know, one to 2,000 people a day uh, is gonna be very problematic uh, with space issues and parking issues and other logistics. So. You know, we had teams of people that were scouting out different sites um, uh, that we thought we could kind of retrofit into uh, making vaccine clinics. And, you know, I think they did a great job. You know, we tried to be geographically diverse. You know, many of them are, are near one of our acute care institutions, but we do have some in some other areas, uh, some through our medical group, 
so I think we have a pretty good coverage around the state uh, for our mega clinics. Uh, you know, you, you mentioned about the vaccine availability, Dr. Alessi. I, I want to really be clear with everyone. You know, this is really the main part of my job uh, on our vaccine team is monitoring how much vaccine each week the state of Connecticut is able to give us. And, you know, the, the number one message I wanted to leave everyone with today is it is it is there is definitely plenty of vaccine for everybody now. Uh, the, the race to get appointments. Uh, I think we're, we're, we're moving past that now. I was even taking a look this morning. You know, we have open appointments next week at almost all of our uh, mega clinics. Uh, so I really want to encourage anyone who maybe, you know, was, was frustrated or having a hard time getting through in the first two weeks in April to really go back through. Uh, in our system, you can get to our MyChart page uh, by going to hartfordhealthcare.org backslash vaccines. Uh, there's, like I said, there's, there's different times and different clinics. You know, next week we have a, um, an early morning clinic at the convention center and an evening clinic at the convention center. We're trying to do things like that in our mega clinics. Uh, but, you know, in all honesty, I think the mega clinics probably um, won't be as important in the future. It's really about reaching people who have other kinds of challenges to get vaccinated. Uh, so as we start to pivot into sort of what, what we call the next phase of this, you know, Harvard Healthcare and other institutions will really be partnering closely with all the local health departments in the state. All the local health departments really know where their vulnerable, uh, where their vulnerable citizens live. You know, maybe it's people who need at-home vaccination. Uh, maybe it's people in certain areas and neighborhoods where smaller clinics need to be set up. So we're having a lot of conversations like that with, with health departments getting ready for really getting even more granular than we have been up to date. Um, and I think that's our best um, strategy moving forward, really making sure that we're connecting with the people who, for whatever reasons, have had challenges to date of uh, finding vaccines. It's interesting. And I guess one thing I wanted to emphasize also, you don't have to be a Connecticut resident to get vaccinated here, but you do have to work here. We have a lot of people who don't necessarily live in Connecticut, but work here. Um, I was uh, at the Mohegan Sun for the Bellator um, uh, combat sports event last night, and we have a lot of people who come here and, and are here for weeks at a time. Uh, and we wanted to emphasize to them that they can be vaccinated here uh, in the state of Connecticut uh, because they are working and employed here uh, and present just as much a threat uh, of spreading the, the virus as anyone else. So um, I think it, it's worth mentioning about that, that ruling uh, in terms of employment here. Um, mm -hmm. You mentioned the mega clinics, and I mean that has been a tremendous thing. You you folks are out at Foxwoods, you're at uh, Sacred Heart University. I mean you're all over. And um, has that been where you've seen the most throughput of people coming through to get the vaccine? Yeah, that's definitely. Uh, that that's if you look at just the numbers, um, strictly on the numbers, that's where we to date had um, the most people come through. Uh, we did do a lot in the hospitals in the first six to eight weeks when there wasn't as much vaccine around and the number of appointments that we were able to offer the public wasn't going to, you know, become too much of a logistical issue at, at the hospitals. We were doing it there. But, you know, we, we always knew that as the supply grew um, for, for really reaching like that large section of the population that is able to, you know, easily get themselves to a mega clinic, is able to have computer access and get themselves, 
scheduled uh, with an appointment, either by calling or using our MyChart application. We, we knew that would be the most efficient way uh, to get that large number of people vaccinated. We always did, you know, in our system, um, making sure that we gave a little bit of an advantage to people uh, who uh, live in zip codes that, um, you know, have been identified by the state as higher priority. We were able to sure. use logic to give them access to some additional appointments. Um, and I think by doing that and by our mobile clinic strategy that we've had and, and, and really being able to do the, um, uh, the FEMA trailer uh, first in the country, which was a great honor, uh, I, I feel really good and I, our system feels really good about our equity strategy uh, in getting the vaccine out to different populations. Eric, let's talk boosters before we end today. We're, we're hearing a lot about the need for boosters. Um, that doesn't surprise me, but were you surprised the fact that we're going to probably need an annual booster for a while? No, I wasn't surprised. If you think about vaccines, um, vaccines kind of fall into two categories, ones that you do get um, periodic new vaccinations on or a booster or ones that are lifetime vaccines, sort of like the measles vaccine. Uh, more of them than not are, um, you know, requiring either an annual vaccine or a booster vaccine. And the, and the ones that tend to be more seasonal illnesses like influenza uh, definitely fall into that category. So I don't think it's at all surprising. And I hope people aren't discouraged when they hear. I know it's been a big news story for the last few days. This is really normal and expected. So, you know, that's one, one of the things that drives whether a booster is needed or not. And we also know that, you know, this particular virus, because, you know, it's been so widespread around the world, you know, there has been some mutation of it. So, you know, having a booster vaccine also allows, you know, the manufacturers of the vaccine the ability to tweak it a little bit uh, so that if there is a way to make small modifications to the vaccine um, to make it more effective against the variants that are going around, that'll just increasingly strengthen our herd immunity. So uh, it's a good thing. You know, we're, we're finding out, you know, I think the big unknown really was what is that time frame? You know, these are our first two messenger RNA vaccines, thinking of the Pfizer and the Moderna specifically. It was really hard for anyone to say for sure how long the immune response would last. You know, I know, you know obviously Pfizer and Moderna are monitoring all the people in the original study very closely, um, and they're going to get a feel uh, for how long the response lasts. It does seem to last longer than actually getting um, the uh, illness itself, though, which I think is kind of interesting. Uh, so that's, that's a positive in my mind because uh, that probably means we have a fair amount of time where we'll have uh, protection from the original shots. Eric, I want to thank you. Thank you for taking time with us today. And more importantly, thanks for all the good work you're doing at Hartford HealthCare and with your team there. I know you have a, a huge team of people um, who support you, and I want to thank you and all of them um, for all the good work you've done for our community in the middle of this uh, pandemic. Thanks, buddy. Yeah, I, I appreciate that very much, Dr. Alessi. And just, again, remind everybody, lots of appointments available next week. Uh, if you haven't been vaccinated yet, uh, take a look at our webpage. I, I think you probably would be able to find a vaccine close to you and uh, get started on that pathway in the near future. I couldn't find a better closing. Thank you, buddy. Appreciate All right, it. Thank you. All right. Uh, that was Mr. Eric Arlia, who is the Senior Director of System Pharmacy. He has really coordinated this whole effort at Hartford HealthCare to a large degree and has done a phenomenal job. Um, I want to thank my studio producer today. Joey Burgoyne has been on the board. 
and doing some training with uh, new folks there, which is always great. Jeff Chandler's in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. Next week on Healthy Rounds, I'll be back live. I'm going to be talking about the volunteer effort here in Connecticut to beat this pandemic. If you missed any part of today's program, you can get it on the Healthy Rounds podcast. Just download it from iTunes or on our new platform on Odyssey. Next up on WT is Garden Talk with Len. Until next week, this is Dr. Anthony Alessi. Please stay healthy.